Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. Well, on this day when the PNC announces the potential of our candidate here on the 28th, uh, it is a very pr- great privilege as one of the members of the PNC to be able to share God's word with you uh, this morning, and truly we are excited about the candidate uh, that God has brought to us. I'm going to share a little bit more about our process as a part of my uh, sermon as I share it this morning. My wife and I uh, just returned from a trip to France. We were celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary, and we were there... We were there with my little family, my daughter, son-in-law, and two grandchildren enjoying that that time together. And so I thought it was appropriate that the title of this message should be French, right? Vive les deferences. So forbearing one another in love. Let's pray together as we start. Father, we thank you that uh, we can gather today around your word and that your spirit will be our teacher Take the words of Scripture and bring them alive, Lord, I pray, in our hearts and mold our spirits as ones who can forbear one another, that we can embrace those people who are different from us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, almost 50 years ago, there was a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer that named, how many would even know that name, Francis Schaeffer? Well, look at you guys. What a community here. He wrote a little book called uh, The Mark of a Christian. It's a little book. Probably all of us can tackle this book, right? And in this book, his thesis was that the strongest arguments for the defense of the faith are not the usual apologetics arguments that we set forth. The word apologetics means defense. And we like to marshal arguments for the evidence for the resurrection, which there's plenty of, and it gives us a satisfied mind. Or we look at the nature of creation, and we see the orderly nature of the world, and we say behind this orderly nature, there is a designer with a capital D, and bring forth that evidence. But Schaefer is reminding us that the strongest evidence for our faith is not those, those things, but it has to do with the way we relate to each other. And he points us to John chapter 13, and you might recall in John chapter 13 that this is the, the time when Jesus uh, demonstrated for his disciples the kind of relationships they were to have with one another. He bowed down before each one of them with a towel and basin in hand and washed their feet. And with that backdrop, he says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Schaefer takes that statement and he says, let me dramatize this for you. It's as if Jesus turns to this, this world out here, this unbelieving world, this watching world, and he says, I'm going to give you an authority. I give you the authority to say, I give you the right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love he shows towards all Christians, because that's the evidence, whether Jesus is real and that we're followers of him. The evidence of love for all Christians. That should be a bit sobering, I think, for all of us in terms of that that message. The world is watching. What are they seeing? But our call to love one another can remain at kind of this lofty level, this pie-in-the-sky kind of love that doesn't really touch down on the real nature of of relationships. And I think the Apostle Paul brings some reality uh, to this. I'm reminded of the old ditty, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with the saints we know, 
That's another story. Uh, so to spell out the reality of the components of what this love is, there's this whole series of statements in Scripture we call the one another statements. And there are 94 different references uh, in Scripture to them. And here's just a sample of what we see in terms of the one another statements. Uh, be at peace with one another. Don't grumble against one another. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. But the one I want to zero in on today is the phrases around forbear with one another, bear with one another, even put up with one another. Because this brings us to kind of the reality of the nature of our relationships. Sometimes there's people in the body of Christ with whom we are not naturally attracted. We might say that they are an, an acquired taste. <laughs> you might think of me as an acquired taste. Um, I don't know how you could possibly think that, being as lovable as I am, but... Uh, for some of us, that's true, right? So forbearance is the attitude we need in order to live with the diversity of types of people within the body of Christ. I call this blue-collar grace. It's grace with a lunch bucket. It's the kind of grace that is willing to get our hands dirty. Forbearance is the quality we need when we rub up close to people, but <clears throat> they could rub us the wrong way. So forbearance is the grease that reduces the friction in relationships. So I want us to do a study of this word. Now, when I came on to this, I thought, well, this is going to be kind of an interesting study. I'll look at the different places that the word forbear is used in Scripture, see the context, and kind of learn the difference of meaning. What I didn't count on was, as I was studying Scripture, it was studying me. I was having to examine my own heart. How magnanimous in spirit am I? Or on the other flip side of that, Gee, how judgmental am I? How quickly I come to conclusions about people and categorize them and box them in. So I want us to, to look at this word, because this word really means magnanimous spirit, an opening up of our spirit. So we'll look at it under three different kind of headings. The first one is keep your minds open to one another, the first meaning of this word. Now, I see this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. The Revised Standard Version puts it this way. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say rejoice. Let everyone know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. But if you turn to the New International Version, it would be different. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. And then, oh, you turn to the English Standard Version, even a different translation. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. If you were to literally translate this word, it comes out, having a patience of mind, or as one person put it, a sweet reasonableness is what this term is all about. In other words, keep your hearts open to those who are different from you. Keep welcoming people into the home of your hearts, even when you want to close them off. Keep it open. So we might do a little examination of ourselves. How are we doing at that? And when you start to think about maybe some of the irritants in your life, you might realize, hmm, Maybe I'm not as good at this as I think I am. Think of family. I can think of a family member who was rather irritating because it seems like everything is about them. And everything has to center around them. And just being around them kind of be irritating. I want to close off the relationship. Or think about those who hold opinions that differ from your own convictions. Did you know there are people in this congregation that that thrive on a different kind of worship style than you do? Wow. And we're different from, from one another. How about those who have made lifestyle cho choices as, 
at followers of Christ that you have a hard time understanding. You say to yourself, well, I can't see how that person spends their money in that way and says they're a Christian Uh, or are pro-choice. There's a whole lot of stereotypes and prejudices that ruminate in our spirit looking for ways to categorize other people and therefore reject them. So when we painfully observe our own spirit around sweet reasonableness or patience of mind, we have to kind of take a look seriously at this. Now, I want to apply this to a a sensitive area, a sensitive area in our culture uh, today, because in our culture, it also impacts the church. I I think it's no secret to us that we are a deeply divided country politically. We appear to be separated into two opposite camps with a, a center that is getting smaller and smaller. And from within our own camps, we like to lob invectives at those in other camps. And we just talk to people that agree with us politically about those people who are on that other camp. And can you imagine having that kind of perspective? So we rarely hold civil conversations with those who hold positions that we cannot fathom. This is bad enough in the body politic at large. But lo and behold, we bring that same stuff into the church, do we not, in terms of our own convictions. But I think the primary way that we deal with it in the church is avoidance. We don't want to be a source of acrimony. Uh, Talking politics only leads to division, we say. But can we actually cut off political convictions, which are oftentimes moral convictions? Political issues become moral issues. Can we not? Can we say that, no, that's not a part of our, our discipleship, a part of being under the lordship of Christ? And all these things need to be brought under examination. So I've longed for a way for us to bear with one another, to have a sweet reasonableness, so we could have civil conversations with those who might be on different ends of the spectrum and live differently than the rest of of our culture. When I was pastoring a church in Chicago, I thought, how do I do this? So I decided to hold a six-week class. Here was the title of the class, Thinking Biblically About the Hot-Button Issues of Our Day. That drew a few people. And and I wanted to create a safe place where we could express our varied and opposing views in a respectful way, yet at the same time, bringing them under the authority of Scripture. So Scripture has to always be the final decision. And so we took on such topics as the role of Israel in the end times, immigration, homosexuality, same-sex marriage. But to be a part of this class, you had to agree to a, a covenant of civility. I wrote the covenant. (laughs) And it says essentially this, if you demean, deride, or condemn someone else's perspective or opinion, you will be asked to leave the class. So we have to listen uh, to each other. That was one attempt uh, to make that happen. How can we do the hard work of bridging the gaps within the Christian community? How could that happen here at Carmel Presbyterian Church? What ways could we have those conversations and set up safe environments where we could listen to each other around these very timely moral issues of our day. So I just throw that out as an open question. If you have any thoughts about that, uh, let's, let's see how we can pursue it. So this first nuance of what it means to forbear is to have a patience of mind, to have a sweet reasonableness. Don't move towards closure in terms of your mindset. 
It's real easy to gather data, make an assumption and a judgment, and then close off growth, as if we think we know a lot about somebody. I know I've been on the receiving end uh, of that, you know, even as a pastor who said, you know, uh, I've got you figured out, <laughs> and relationships die and cut off. So give each other a chance, I think is what uh, Paul is saying uh, to us here. The second nuance of forbearance is give room for people to be fallible. And I take this from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul exposes his heart to us. He writes in the verse, verse, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And then the Living Translation goes like this. I hope you will be patient with me as I keep on talking like a fool. Do bear with me and let me say what is on my heart. Bear with a little foolishness. Put up with, give room, Paul is saying. And what is this foolishness that, he, that he's talking about? Well, throughout 2 Corinthians, we know that Paul is under attack. There are those who are challenging his authority. He calls them super apostles that uh, are undermining his authority in the church. And Paul does this zigzag back and forth, broken field running. On the one hand, he says, I don't need any defense for my apostleship. I know who I am. I stand firm in that. And then, phew, next moment, he's defending himself, and he's feeling foolish about defending himself in this way. So I want to read to you some larger sections out of Eugene Peterson's translation of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, because he does such a good job of sharing with us Paul's divided heart and mind and how he's trying to get it together. Will you put up with a little foolish aside from me? Please, just for a moment. The thing that has me so upset is that I care about you so much. This is the passion of God burning inside of me. I promised your hand in marriage to Christ, presented you as a pure virgin to her husband, and now I'm afraid that exactly as the snake seduced Eve with smooth patter, you are being lured away from the simple purity of your love for Christ. It seems if someone shows up preaching quite another Jesus than we preached, different spirit, different message, you put up with him quite nicely. But if you put up with these three, these big shot apostles, why can't you put up with simple me? I'm as good as they are. It's true that I don't have their voice, haven't mastered that smooth eloquence that impresses you so much. But when I do open my mouth, I at least know what I'm talking about. Let me come back to where I started. Don't hold it against me if I continue to sound foolish. And if you rather just accept that I am a fool and let me rant on a while. I didn't learn that kind of talk from Christ. Oh, no. It's bad habit I picked up from the three-ring preachers that are so popular these days. Since you admire the egomaniacs of the pulpit so much, remember that this is your friend, the fool, talking. Let me try my hand at it. Do they brag of being Hebrews, Israelites, the pure race of Abraham? I'm their match. Are they servants of Christ? I can go them one better. I can't believe I'm saying these things. It's crazy to talk this way. But I started, and I'm going to finish. You feel Paul's conflictedness in all that, going from one side to another? Here's how I kind of summarize what I think Paul is saying to us. Indulge me. Give me some room. Please don't think of me a fool. I'm putting my insecurity on public display. Please don't think less of me. Allow me my moment of temporary insanity. My emotions have overtaken me. My insecurity drives me to my defense. I'm fallible, okay? I'm not a god. 
My emotions are not under control at every moment. I will return to my better self. But inside of me is a hurt, rejected self, a child that needs to be cared for. I just need some understanding. Ever felt that way? When you're not at your better self and you just want some room to be a little bit crazy for a while? I thought of uh, a, a dinner table conversation I had with my wife some years ago. This was when she was an elementary school principal. And she came home from work that day really upset. Something uh, had angered her deeply. Some injustice had been done. And we're sitting at the dinner table. And she is emoting at full rage about what has taken place. And being the ever-vigilant disciple of Jesus that I am, I said something to the effect that a disciple of Christ should not feel that way. And I probably said something just as stupid as, you shouldn't feel that way. Then her response indelibly is seared in my brain. Her anger turns from what she was angry at to me, <laughs> who is now a new source of her anger. And she said it was, and I quote, because I can remember this very clearly, if I can't be angry with you, then who can I be angry with? Like, good point. <laughs> I learned that night that we're not machines, that we're fallible people. We get tired, we wear down, we need people to give us slack, to be off kilter a bit. Don't crowd me too tightly. When I'm not at my best, just give me some room, accept me as I am. I won't stay here forever, I promise. A good night's sleep, I'll feel better in the morning. Bear with me, put up with me. And I think that's what Paul was saying. I know I'm playing the fool. I even look foolish to myself, but I, I'm not able to stop at this moment. Please give me space. Give me grace. I think that's part of what forbearance is all about. And then thirdly, forbear means to affirm the integrity and uniqueness of the individual. Take this from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Paul strings together like kind of beads on a necklace the qualities we are to have. And when we read these qualities today, we think, oh, yeah, okay, we know these things. But when Paul was writing about the nature of what the Christian walk was all about and the Christian character was all about, he was writing a foreign language to a culture that had no idea about these particular qualities. He says, can be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And this particular nuance of the bear with is to kind of tolerate and even actually accept another person as unique individuals as they are, affirm individuality, for it's an expression of the variety of the diversity of God's people. God called his church together. He didn't consult any of us as to who should be a part of the body of Christ. He just said, simply accept each other. I don't have a vote on God's call on your life or on my life, but we are, are here together. So step outside of ourselves and see each other for who we are. And this is what a, certainly one of the signs of our sinful nature, that we tend to, to view things, ways of doing things, from our own limited perspective, because it's my way of thinking, my way of doing things, of course it's the right way to do things. Anybody not functioning in that way is outside of what the right norm uh, should be. So it's possible you know, to uh, act in this way uh, because we 
reject people uh, who are outside of our own sphere of influence. In marriage life, we oftentimes think when we are dating and getting married that, oh, I see that personality quirk in that person, but when I get married, I will be able to shape them into my own mold, all right? Yeah, how's that working? I mentioned 50 years of marriage, right? And I, I went through that phase of, okay, here's what you need to be for me. Uh, and it's taken me, and I still follow this, a long time to see the uniqueness and wonder of my wife. She's a mystery to me, but a wonderful mystery uh, to me because we are different, different people. And one of the ways we try to change one another is to get our spouses to respond to us in a way that we think would meet our needs. There's a story of a woman who wasn't feeling very special to her husband. He never did those things that expressed affection. And she noticed that some neighbors had moved in across the street, and she would open the blinds and and see that uh, when the husband came home at night, he would go up to the front door and door would open, and uh, he would always have a little gift, flowers, candy, for his wife. They would hug and kiss at the door. And she watched this for a number of weeks, and finally she decided she was going to confront her husband. So he comes home one night. She was kind of ready, waiting for him. And the moment uh, he walked in the door, she hit him with it. She said, uh, have you noticed we have new neighbors across the street? Dropped his briefcase, fell in his easy chair, turned on the television set, and then, yeah, I've noticed we have new neighbors, he says. And then she continued, but have you noticed what they do every night? No, dear, I haven't noticed. Every night when he comes home, she meets him at the door, gives her a little kiss, Uh, hugs her, always has a gift that he brings that is a special gift. How come you never do that? And the husband looked rather puzzled and said to her, Honey, I can't do that. I hardly know the woman. (laughs) Some are dense, yeah. Um, Learning the love language is slow on some of our parts. Over the last uh, nine months, seven of us have been in a living laboratory of what it means to respect each individual's perspective. We are called the Pastor Nominating Committee. Uh, We've had over 50 meetings, I am told. I wasn't keeping track, but that seems to be the number. But we agreed early on that the way we related to each other, the way we treated each other, would be foundational for coming to the right conclusion for the pastor uh, for our church. We wanted to, as I say, be the people of God as we did the work of God. And this meant honoring the perspective and the insights of each individual and not trampling over anyone's personal point of view. Now, this can be rather befuddling and frustrating at times, seeing Emmy sitting right here in front of me. There are times when we came to opposite conclusions about a candidate. We'd read the resumes, listen to the sermons, uh, do interviews, and she might come to one conclusion, I might come to another conclusion. And how could you possibly see that, you know, Um, the difference there? But we always felt that it was important to listen deeply to each other, respect each other's perspective, no matter how contrary it may be to our own. And we trusted that God could bring a group of seven people, ages 28 to 90, (laughs) uh, to a unified and enthusiastic heart for a single candidate. And this is what the Lord has done. Uh, We have called to forbear with one another, and we have been living in that wonderful forbearance because we, when that future candidate came to us, we all said an enthusiastic, yes, this is the one God has called. And 
that's kind of a small miracle in a sense, you know, that uh, we'd all have the same enthusiasm for the one person. And as part of this exhortation uh, to appreciate the uniqueness of one another, I urge you to do the same with your new pastor. Everyone in this room has developed an ideal picture of what you think a pastor should be. Perhaps you had your favorite pastor from the past, and therefore the qualities in that person is the one that you are hoping for in this one to come. And what I'm going to ask you to do is take that picture, put it on the Etch-A-Sketch, slide the bar, and erase it, and welcome the person that is coming here. Again, I I know what it's like as a pastor to have people see you through the filter of their projected image of what they want you to be. And you're standing there saying, hey, you're missing a gift here, me. (laughs) You're not seeing me for who I am. You're seeing me only through what you want me to be. And I exhort us um, to do that as a part of this in welcoming uh, our new pastor. Of course, we vote him in on the 28th. So I've just described what I think is the expansive heart, um, the heart of magnanimity, the generous spirit that comes through the filter of these uh, three different ways that we have seen what the word forbear means. Forbear means to keep a patience of mind, realizing that we don't have the whole story of someone's life. Forbearance means to give room for people to be fallible because we all need to be accepted in the moments of temporary insanity. Forgive, forbear means to affirm the uniqueness of others because all are needed to reflect the infinite creativity of God. But you might ask, well, where did I get this magnanimity of spirit? Where does it come from? What's the reservoir from which I can draw to open my heart to those that I might want to close my heart to? And it certainly comes from the way the Lord treats us. He forbears with us in love as well. Paul, writing about the Jews who have rejected Jesus, uh, says, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? And then Romans 3.25, God in his divine forbearance has passed over former sins. In other words, we live in the age of God's forbearance, the scripture says, so that all can come to faith in Christ. This is what Peter says, The Lord is not slow slow about his promises, some count slowness, referring to the second coming of Christ, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. He gives us space. He gives us room. Think back on your own life. Maybe the journey that you even came to faith in Christ, and at one point maybe in opposition to him, but God and his patience brought you along to the place where you have responded uh, to his grace. And he says, do the same for others. Have that kind of patience. And then Paul puts himself forth as his exhibit A for this. In his first letter to Timothy, uh, Paul reminds us of his process of coming to faith. For he says, I am the foremost of sinners, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, forbearance, for an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's reminding us that at one point he was the persecutor of the church. He was dragging Christians out and having them stoned. And then God in his forbearance brought him. That's grace. That's the grace that we need, we need to draw upon. So if you understand anything about your need for forgiveness provided for you from the bounty of Christ, 
if you have any comprehension of what Christ went through to wipe the slate clean of your lives, let grievances go and bring ourselves back under that grace that has been provided for us. As we conclude this morning, um, I want to take us into just a time of prayer to allow us to kind of reflect on the points that have been made and allow the Holy Spirit to bring to your attention things that you may need to look at in your own life, especially in relationships. So let's bow together in prayer. Father, we hear this admonition from Scripture to, to bear with to forbear, to even put up with one another in love. So if forbearance or bearing with is a patience of mind, a sweet reasonableness, who are we having trouble keeping our hearts open to? Lord, bring them to our attention. If forbearance or bearing with is giving others room to be fallible when they are not at their best self, who are we crowding? Who are we pressing in on and should back off from? If forbearance or bearing with is the celebration of the uniqueness of one another, who are we trying to shape and press into our own image to make them like us? Lord, we confess that it is hard to let go sometimes hard not to keep pressing our own will upon others and trusting you that you will do your work in other people's lives. I know I confess this myself. So let me end with this exhortation. Let's get our hands dirty with the grease of forbearance. It will go a long way to reducing the friction between us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.